You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, this is Bella Mehta from New York reporting for Room Now, and we have with us Dr. Ali Duarte from the Mayo Clinic. Uh, welcome and thank you for your time. Um, I saw a couple of abstracts on multimorbidity in lupus, and I thought it'd be a great uh, conversation to have with you. Uh, so why do you think multimorbidity is important in lupus? Well, uh, as you know, Belém, mo most of the studies in, in lupus before have focused on uh, one comorbidity specific for patients, you know, like lupus and cardiovascular disease or lupus and osteoporosis, things like that. And really, I mean, in, in real life, patients have way more comorbidities and are way more complex than what those studies have been reflecting. So um, I think by studying multimorbidity, you truly reflect more of the patient experience, you know, and reflect the high complexity of the patients that we, we care for. Um, and, and this patient-centric approach has not been a, done in the past. It has based it has been based more in one-on-one -on -one comorbidities sure. so i think it gives you a different dimension that of the patients that has not been ex explored in the past true and sometimes you know when we're taking care of uh, lupus patients uh, we're often almost taking over some of the primary care roles because there's these patients have a lot of needs and we we need to make sure that we ensure um you know uh, doing the right immunizations, making sure that we are uh, screening for the right things and whatnot. So uh, that's, that's important. So uh, what, uh, you know, what data set did you use? How did you do the study? Yeah, so we, for this study, we used the uh, Optum Labs data warehouse. Uh, so this is um, uh, a claims, claims uh, data that includes data both from uh, Medicare Advantage, but also from um, um, commercially insured patients. And we identified patients with lupus uh, from age 18 to, you know, like any adults um, using uh, this uh, previously used algorithm of three IC9 codes uh, separated by one month. Um, and then we matched them uh, by depending, you know, that we, we have several studies. So if the matching was a little bit different depending which study, but either um, age uh, or sex, gender, ethnicity, depending what, what of the studies we're referring to. And, and then we looked back at the comorbidities that they had ex uh, accumulated from when they got enrolled into the, in the insurance to uh, 20, 2015 or so. True. So then most of these patients, I mean, a lot of lupus patients would be below the age of 65. So uh, most of them would be commercially insured. Yeah, so we have a, all the ones up to age 65 were commercially insured. And then the ones older than 65, because we did have a group, uh, a, we have a, sec, a cohort of patients older than 65, um, were a, a Medicare Advantage patients. Okay. And... Uh, so something that I, I, I like, the, there was some sex differences. Can you, can you discuss a little more about uh, male lupus patients? Sure. So when, when we first look at the, at the controls, we saw that multimorbidity was the, the 
differences between sexes was uh, maybe indicating a little bit more in women than in men. And, you know, this has been described before, maybe women seek more care. Also, women live longer, so they tend to accumulate more comorbidities. Um, but in, in, in the lupus patients, we observed the opposite, that patient, male patients have more multimorbidity than than women and these remain after we we use a different definition of multimorbidity one was with two comorbidities yeah. or more and then we did a sensitivity analysis with five or more comorbidities and it remained showing that males have more multimorbidity and you know this we one of the explanations is that we think is that is explaining this is because patients male patients tend to have more severe disease and also, uh, you know, in general, males are not as uh, uh, compliant, you know, like compliance with medications and seeking care and delaying care is more common in general in males. So, you know, there might be some, some uh, social or, you know, like gender specific factors that are driving that as well. True. And I think that, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, there's so much talk about lupus in women that males are often forgotten. So I think your your uh, uh, your abstract really highlights the importance of taking care of these patients. Um, another uh, abstract that I saw was about age. Uh, what is your key takeaway from that? So I I think the the importance of this abstract is that it shows. Uh, I'll, that even young patients are very highly complex. You know, they have a lot of other comorbidities going on, even, um, you know, in their 20s or so. And when we compare them to the general population, the complexity of these patients is the same as somebody without lupus who is 30 years older. Uh, so I think I think that was an important take. And then as, an, another one is that even in the old patients, you know, the ones who were 65 and older, you will think that maybe as the general population is getting older, the complexity of these patients is going to remain the same. And even in elderhood, lupus patients remain a, a, a even more complex cohort than those without SLE. Interesting. Um, I, I think, again, uh, these these patients sometimes need like a full team of people to manage them, right? Uh, especially uh, with all the comorbidities and the multimorbidities that come with it. Um, and the last abstract is uh, discussing race and ethnicity in this context. And what is your uh, take on that? Yes. Yeah, so in when we did the race and ethnicity analysis, so um, just to give you a little bit of background in the general population. So it has been uh, well described that compared to whites, Asians, for example, tend to have less comorbidities or multimorbidity. Um, blacks have more, and then Hispanics in some sometimes they have the same as as whites or a little bit less. You know, they what sometimes they call this the Hispanic paradox. And um, they, when we looked at the SLE patients, uh, we we thought that in general all these patients were going to have more uh, pronounced multimorbidity based on the observations in the racial groups in the general population. But so one of the things that we observed is that these uh, racial variation or racial uh, characteristics in the general population remain in the patients with lupus. So Asians have Asians with lupus have less multimorbidity, and Blacks have more multimorbidity than whites. 
and Hispanics also had a very similar as, as whites. And however, when we compared the general population with the, with the lupus patients by, by race or ethnicity, the, the patients who, the SLE patients have less differences compared to whites in lupus than in the general population. So we know that, you know, just lupus uh, severity is worst in, say, uh, African-Americans or Blacks. Um, you're saying that multimorbidity is not a double whammy in lupus, in minority lupus patients? Yeah, it seems, you know, it doesn't seem to be more than what we will have expected in the in the general population. So the differences within in lupus patients of different race, racial or ethnic groups are not as a dramatic as the ones that you see in the general population. So th they are still there, but they okay. they are attenuated. And maybe, you know, just having a chronic disease uh, equalizes some of those differences, you know, but they are still present here. And they are just not as um, marked as in the, in the general population. I mean, that's an interesting take, right? Because that goes against, or not against, but... Um, that's not what you initially think when you start uh, thinking about this problem. So uh, very interesting work there, uh, looking at thousands of patients. How many were they, like 34, 35,000 patients with lupus? Correct, yeah, it's a, it's around 36,000, yeah. Great. Um, so again, I think disparities in lupus is important, uh, important discussions about multimorbidity here. And thank you, Dr. Duarte, for your time. Um, for more updates, follow me on Room Now at Bella underscore Meta is my Twitter handle. And thank you so much for your time. Hello, everyone. I'm Olga Petrine, and I'm here today to share some updates from the 2021 virtual ACR meeting. Today, I would like to share uh, information from the abstract 1783, which is a Canadian study that um, evaluated the trends of hospitalizations for serious infections among patients with psoriatic arthritis. And I was very pleased to find out from the studies that between years 2012 and 2017, there was a statistically significant decrease in the dischargers for conditions like sepsis, skin and soft tissue infections, and UTIs uh, among patients who suffer from underlying psoriatic arthritis. There is no statistical difference in the trends for pneumonia, but it seems that regardless of the treatments re received, especially the fact that a lot of patients were on DMARTs and biologic DMARTs, the infections and hospitalizations for infections were quite lower. That may have to do with better disease control and that leads to better outcomes, but all in all, it seems like what's been done in Canada during this last uh, five years is right and patients are doing significantly better. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this presentation and if you want to learn more, please follow us on Room Now. Hello everyone, my name is Shweta and I'm reporting from ACR 2021 for Room Now to talk about a few ACR posters which are highlighting patient-reported outcomes in axial spondyloarthritis. Poster number 0359 has tried to map the journey from symptom onset to diagnosis of axial spondyloarthritis across 30 European countries and found it takes about seven years from symptom onset until diagnosis. Patients with worse disease activity undergo more visits to multiple practitioners and more investigations, showing a greater struggle. 
Spinning off from this data, poster 0357 depicts a study done using ankylosing spondylitis registry of Ireland, and this showed the prevalence of unemployment in axial spondyloarthritis, and it was about 21%, and this is higher than their national average. The strongest predictors of unemployment were male sex and worse disease activity outcome measures, which was specifically BASME and ASQRL. Again, collaborating with that, abstract number 0366 shows that uh, three-fourths of European AXPA patients have difficulty in finding a job. They found that the qualitative factors were difficulty in public transport, the need for customized shoes, and not having a university education. The quantitative factors were worse disease activity, spinal stiffness, poorer mental health, and functional limitation. Thus, all of these posters highlight the importance of patient-reported outcome, giving us a peek into the disease activity and ASPA, and how their daily life can be significantly associated with uncontrolled disease activity. Thank you. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate for RoomNow.com, enjoying virtual ACR Convergence 2021. I personally have a special interest in pregnancy and PSA and AXPA patients, and I wanted to highlight three abstracts from 2021's ACR discussing risks, disease activity, and outcomes with you today. So in abstract number 0369, Dr. McGuire et al. in Ireland collected data from the Ankylosing Spondylitis Registry of Ireland, ASRI, looking at overall complication risk in AXPA pregnancies a total of 220 female AXPA registry patients, 61 reported a total of 210 pregnancies that resulted in 166 live births. 58% of these pregnancies were uncomplicated. Miscarriage frequency was found to be about 20% and 37% of patients experienced miscarriages in total. The most common complication that was reported was C-section. That was only 10% of patients. 11% experienced preterm delivery, and the most common fetal complication was NICU admission and 11% of, of deliveries. This is also kind of interesting too. Only 5% of women reported difficulties conceiving, and none of them needed to go to reproductive endocrinology or seek additional help in, in order to become pregnant. Breastfeeding was also found to be low and only 33% of live births. Abstract 1722 out of Sweden and Denmark looked at the registries to determine preeclampsia risk in rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and AF patients. So they identified a total of 1,700 RA patients, 800 AXPA patients, and 489 PSA pregnancies. Their analysis showed that pregnant psoriatic arthritis patients were more likely to be obese, they were more likely to be smokers, and weirdly, they were more likely to be less educated. Further, this population was the only group found to be at increased risk for preeclampsia. And monotherapy treatment was also considered an increased risk of preeclampsia in this particular population. So this makes me question, is there a disease activity component within this potential role? In terms of pregnancies, the risk of preeclampsia doubled with high disease activity compared to controlled pregnancies. Now that's something we've seen before in other studies, but this was not observed in AXPA or psoriatic arthritis patient populations. And last but not, 
abstract number 1730 out of Germany and the Rekiss registry. So as you may be aware, the Rekiss re is a prospective longitudinal cohort study. And in this particular uh, study, the group looked at disease activity and pregnancy outcomes in SPA. So there were 140 SPA pregnancies that were included. 74 had not been exposed to DMARDs at conception. Eight of these patients were exposed to biologics at conception or not exposed to biologics during pregnancy. And 28 were exposed continuously from and all the way through pregnancy. As you can imagine, the biologics prescribed were sertolizumab at 50%, adalimumab at 21%, it's 12%, infliximab 9%, Golimumab in two patients, secukinumab and ustekinumab in one patient each. That's a mouthful. <laughs> the group found that the frequency of flares increased in the group that was exposed to bile initially, but were stopped on therapy during pregnancy. And those flares tended to, to worsen um, as the trimesters progressed for each Flare rates were the lowest, as you can imagine, in those patients who were continuously on biologics. In terms of the outcomes, 95% of patients in, the, in this particular case, the pregnancies resulted in live births. Each group did have two spontaneous abortions. One pregnancy was terminated due to suspected malformations and one triplet pregnancy resulted in, in one live birth. So the overarching themes for me remain pretty much the same as they have been. We need to treat our patients appropriately regardless of their potential for pregnancy and to educate them on their disease. We need to be aware that worsening disease can lead to worsening pregnancy outcomes for patients. And we definitely need to have that risk benefit discussion with patients overall for all, all of our disease states and for all of our drugs. The better we educate ourselves, the better we will be for our patients. For more ACR Convergence 21 coverage, follow us on roomnow.com. And of course, follow me on Twitter at UpToTate. Hello everyone, I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting for uh, Room Now from ACR Convergence 2021. I'm here to talk to you today about uh, poster number 1773, which was presented on Tuesday. This was presented by Joris Deals. It was entitled, Comparing the Efficacy of Guselcomab and Nostokinumab in Psoriatic Arthritis. Um, so this study uh, took individual patient data from the randomized control trials of these two agents, namely the DISCOVER 1 and 2 studies and the Peace Summit uh, trials. It was an indirect comparison and compared baselcomab every four weeks or every eight weeks to ustekinumab 45 milligrams or 90 milligrams. There was 1,367 patients included um, in this uh, study. And their main outcomes were ACR20 for joints and PASI90 for the skin. So they found that guselcomab um, was better than ustekinumab with an odds ratio of 1.9 for achieving ACR20 and an odds ratio of between 2.6 and 3.2 for achieve, achieving a PASI90. So the results of this are not particularly surprising to me, I think we kind of knew that ostekinumab was probably not as good a dr drug as a lot of our other biologic agents in psoriatic arthritis, um, uh, whereas um certainly is. Um, and 
So I think the implications of this trial in and of itself are not surprising, perhaps not overly exciting. Um, but what I think is really important about this study is that somebody's done a head-to-head -head comparison, an indirect one at least, uh, between these two drugs. And I think that's something we really need a lot more of in all of our diseases, but particularly in psoriatic arthritis. We have this plethora of agents available to us now, all of which are very similar um, efficacies when they've been compared to placebo and randomized control trials. But we don't really know which one to use in individual patients sitting in front of us. And we like to, to slice and dice the data a bit and say, oh, they have this particular clinical feature. Maybe this one is better for this. Um, but these are really minimal differences that we're kind of extrapolating from the clinical trials. And I really do think we need um, to have more head-to-head -head comparisons, whether they are done by pharmaceutical companies themselves or whether um, this certainly is the sort of subject of that would be very suitable to an investigator-initiated pragmatic trial looking at very specific um, outcomes. And I, I think we do need uh, more of that to better inform our decision-making around these biologic uh, drugs. Log on to Room Now for more from ACR Convergence and follow me at Richard P.A. Conway on Twitter. Hello, everyone. This is Olga Petrine, and I'm here to share some news from ACR 2021 meeting. Today, I would like to talk about Abstract 1810, which is a presentation from HSS on the prescribing trends and patient preference in terms of uh, biologic use in patients with psoriatic arthritis. While we see that the mass immunomodulatory therapies, um, TNF inhibitors, methotrexate, IL-17 inhibitors remain as a first choice of a medication. After the 2018 um, um, guideline update, uh, we see that there is a significant increase in percentage of patients who choose interleukin-17 inhibitors as their first line of treatment for psoriatic arthritis. We went up from 3.5 to 30%. And similar trend is seen for anti-PD4 inhibitors uh, Tesla in particular, where it went from 11% to 40% um, patient choosing it as a first-line treatment. Of course, there's still a lot of use of NSAIDs as a first-line in TNF inhibitors, but there is a little bit of the shift in other uh, treatment options um, preferred by the patients. And then uh, when patients were surveyed and asked, like, what's the most extreme importance for them uh, when they choose the medication, they said prevention of the joint damage, 80%. Um, perform daily activities at 71%, prevention of pain and doctor's choice between 60 to 70%. And of course, medication side effects were rated at 62%. So it seemed that the um, uh, choice of the medication is important for the patient. And what's most concerning for them is safety of the medication and prevention of the joint damage. And that probably leads to, to this particular increase in IL-17 and PDF4 use. I hope you find this interesting and useful. And if you do, please follow us on Room Now.